Heavenly Father, we pray that indeed you are glorified today as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we pray that as we gather this morning and worship you through song, as we hear from your word, encourage us, remind us of the good news, give us hope that one day you are returning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome to Maranatha. I'm Pastor Tony, one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you're with us on this Christmas Eve day, and I invite you to wish those around you a good morning or a Merry Christmas before you have a seat. It's great to have all of you with us this morning. If you are visiting with us, uh, we do have yellow sheets that should be around either in the pews or maybe in the back. And if you want to get connected, we'd love to get connected with you. You can fill one of those out and drop it in the offering box in the back. Uh, We don't have any announcements really this morning. And uh, we just want to celebrate our Savior's birth. And uh, over the weeks of Advent, we've been lighting these candles over here, uh, reflecting on some of the different aspects And today we light the center candle, uh, which represents the birth of Christ. It's not every year that our Sunday morning services are uh, on Christmas Eve, but uh, as you know, we have uh, two services this morning. We also have our evening service that will be identical to uh, this morning, uh, maybe a little bit different with worship songs, but uh, Pastor Aaron's going to be preaching this morning, and we're going to be reflecting this morning on the uh, announcements of Jesus' birth and what he accomplished by coming to this earth, by taking on flesh and dwelling among us. And so I want to invite Pastor Aaron up to uh, preach this morning. I want to pray for him uh, this morning as well. Heavenly Father, I pray for Pastor Aaron as he prepares to preach this morning. I pray and uh, just thank you for the time that he has devoted to studying your word uh, in the weeks leading up to today. And I pray that you would speak powerfully through him, that we would be challenged and encouraged this morning as your people, as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm going to ask you to bear with me a little bit this morning. Uh, I am recovering from a case of bronchitis, and uh, and then on Friday, um, I had a crick in my neck, and then spent three hours yesterday in urgent care trying to get that figured out. Um, So I apologize to the right side of the congregation. I will have to totally turn my body to see you. So it's not that I like you guys more or that you need to be preached to more. It's just that I can't, uh, I can't turn very well uh, this morning. But the boss said I had to come to work anyway. Um, it's a beautiful occasion to have the privilege to preach and also to be able to preach um, on Christmas Eve on such a great holiday where we take time to celebrate the birth of the one who would save us from our sins. And taking some time this morning to uh, do some reflection, actually this morning we aren't even going to get to the birth of Jesus itself. We're going to be focusing on the announcements to his earthly parents and uh, what the writers of the Gospels have to say 
about that and how God worked uh, supernaturally through them. Before we get into the text this morning, I want to share with you, uh, this is uh, a legend. It is not confirmed to be true. In fact, most scholars would argue that it uh, is not true because certain people wouldn't have been at certain places. But uh, around this time, we, uh, we spend time watching movies or perhaps telling our kids about a man who wears red and comes down our chimneys and uh, vandalizes our homes and uh, eats our cookies and milk. And we know him as Santa Claus. But, and uh, some of you, I hope all of you know, uh, this uh, character of Santa Claus is based on the man Nicholas, who was a bishop in uh, what is now modern-day Turkey. Um, this is a legend about Nicholas. Again, uh, most think it is not true, but I like to think that it is. Let me share this with you. In AD 325, Emperor Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea, the very first ecumenical council. More than 300 bishops came from all over the Christian world to debate the nature of the Holy Trinity. It was one of the early church's most intense theological questions. Arius from Egypt was teaching that Jesus the Son was not equal to God the Father. Arius forcefully argued his position at length, and the bishops listened respectfully. As Arius vigorously continued, Nicholas became more and more agitated. Finally, he could no longer bear what he believed was essential being attacked. The outraged Nicholas got up, crossed the room, and slapped Arius across the face. The bishops were shocked. It was unbelievable that a bishop would lose control and be so hot-headed in such a solemn assembly. Now again, this is, this is a legend that many uh, have been skeptical of as um, Nicholas most likely was not there because he was not uh, uh, ranking high enough in, in the order of bishops and all that. But I like to think that it is true because uh, it's a fun story. But the, the reality of that story, if, if there is any reality, is uh, the passion of Nicholas for the essentials of the Christian faith. And his, uh, his reputation, all, everything that he held dear was being attacked. The essentials of the essentials, as it were. In church, we often say major on the majors and minor on the minors. And Jesus being the son of God, being equal with God the Father, being totally God and totally man, is about as essential as you can get to the Christian faith. The core of Christianity is the reality that we have a triune God who has redeemed us. I'm going to say that again because that was the part where you say amen. The core of Christianity is the reality that we have a triune God who has redeemed us. The entire Christmas story, the nativity, whatever you want to call it, the beginnings of the man, Jesus Christ, is wrapped up in the very announcement to Jesus' earthly parents, to Mary and to Joseph. And that's uh, the text we're going to be looking at today is Luke chapter 1. If you would turn there uh, with me, Luke chapter 1. Matthew and Luke uh, both have accounts of, the, of certain events in the Christmas story. Each one has certain things that are unique about them. Uh, Luke contains the announcement to Mary and Matthew contains the announcement to Joseph. So we will be looking at 
each of those texts this morning. Um, It's interesting to see how God interacts with his people because when the angel comes to Mary, there's, there's a reality there that, yes, angels have come to men and women before and God has spoken to men and women before, but what God is about to do will never be replicated again. The announcement to Mary is unique to Mary. The announcement to Joseph is unique to Joseph because of what the message contains. Let's uh, join me in Luke chapter 1. We're going to go verse 26 to 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This message is very special because of not only who it's to, but who it is about. It's interesting in, uh, as we meet this girl, Mary, we don't get her name right away, but a description of who she is. If you go to uh, verses 26 and 27, let's go back to those together. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Why is Nazareth important? Uh, Theologians have Several answers, but uh, the two that stand out to me is uh, the, the prophecy about the chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, in Isaiah 49, 7 says, The Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, the despised one, the one abhorred by the nation. And uh, if you go to uh, uh, John chapter 1, you'll learn that the Jews did not have much regard for this little town of Nazareth. It was not a well-thought-of place. Uh, I was trying to come up with a description for it, and the best way I would describe uh, Nazareth to people from Wisconsin is that it's basically like Minnesota. Um, People from Nazareth were not looked well upon. Uh, They were thought of as often as criminals, uh, grungy, dirty, poor, uh, uh, whatever, whatever... bad way you can think of someone that's that's how the town of Nazareth was thought of a town of about 400 people at this time and we get the prophecy in Isaiah that 
the Holy One, the Anointed One, will be despised. And uh, even in Nathaniel's words to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth when talking about the Messiah? The other evidence we uh, possibly have is, is very interesting. I did not know this until I was studying for this sermon. Um, in the original Hebrew, I, I've not had the chance to take Hebrew yet. So I'm still cruising my way through Greek in seminary. Um, but in, in the original Hebrew, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, you might recall that there is a prophecy uh, concerning a root coming from the stump of Jesse. And the root there is, uh, the, the word would be nesder. And in Hebrew, uh, they don't use vowels, so they would have the consonants N-Z-R. And if you go to the time of the New Testament, now they're not, they're not speaking the same Hebrew, they're speaking a dialect called Aramaic. And if you were to look at the town of Nazareth, if you were to see perhaps a sign on the road, you would see the letters N. Z R. Now theologians are torn on this issue. I don't think it makes or breaks the validity of scripture in any way, but I did find that interesting. So Luke makes a, a point to mention that Gabriel is going to Nazareth. And then notice the next description, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Again, going back to the book of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. The virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. That's not a normal way to introduce a character or to introduce a friend. It's not, that's not something that is, uh, that is often talked about. The fact that she has never been intimate with a man. But it is important to our theology. So we have two theological clues that we should start getting excited. First, the fact that, that uh, they're in Nazareth. The next thing is that she is a virgin. And then we keep going, uh, and we talk about the father, uh, whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. We get a descriptor of her husband, and yet we still haven't learned her name yet. If we were to go to the stories of King David, you could see that he was a great king, even, in, even though he often messed up, he had sinned against God, he was always one to admit his sin and to uh, weep when he had sinned and, and been called out on his sin and ask forgiveness from God. But if we were to look at why as to we might be excited for the fact that this person is of the descendant of David, we would have to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God says to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up for you an offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we have three descriptions before we even get her name. And we have, obviously we do it. It says, and the virgin's name, again, describing her in that way, signifying the importance of what's about to happen. And the virgin's name was Mary. And this gives me, and I hope you, a clue that what is about to happen is not, in fact, about Mary. 
Mary is not the main character of this story. Mary will be an agent used to bring about the redemption of God's people. Yes, just like Moses, just like Joshua, Elisha, uh, pick whatever Old Testament biblical character you want or New Testament biblical character that you want. The agents that are going on mission for God really are special because of the grace of God. It's not about Mary. She's, she's an agent used to bring about God's great redemptive plan. And I think we see that in the next few verses. If you continue on in, in verse 28, and coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Uh, if we were to translate that very, very literally, the translation there would be grace to you, graced one. Grace to you, graced one, implying that what is about to happen only is happening because of the grace of God, because of the mercy of God, because of who God is. And all the glory will go to him. And at the end of the account, actually, Mary gives the glory to God, as we will see. Verses 31 through 33 Continue on. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom shall have no end. Now, Luke has gone in his description of Mary and who Mary is and has gone back to the Old Testament. And now Gabriel, in his uh, message to Mary, again, is going back to the Old Testament. Testament, mentioning two very important biblical characters in the same family line. Again, referencing the throne of their father, David, referencing the greatness of David, and also the promise from 2 Samuel 7 that one day a ruler would come to save his people and reign forever. But he goes even further back with Mary. He goes to the house of of Jacob, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, going back to the beginning of the redemptive plan. Showing, I believe, that God has always had this plan. It wasn't something that he made up in response to us, but he, he's always had this plan. He's, it's always been set in motion. Everything that has happened, especially to this family, is pointing us and moving slowly towards God's redemptive plan to redeem his creation. Mary then asks a question of the angel. And it's interesting to note, this is not the only angelic message that is given in this chapter. If we go back a few verses, we will, uh, and we will read um, the account of Zacharias. But first I want us to notice uh, Mary's question. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? How can this come about since I am a virgin? I've never been intimate with a man. How could I possibly bear a son? And then the angel gives her the answer gives her the, uh, the way that it's going to happen, gives her some evidence. But I want us to notice the different reaction that, that Mary has to this angel message than Zacharias, her distant relative, has to this message. So it, it might be on the same page for you, or you might have to turn a page, but go to Luke uh, 1, verse 11. 
If you look in Luke 1, it's chocked full of, of some great narrative of the family uh, of, of Mary and uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth getting ready to have a, the baby John, even in their old age. But let's see what this angelic message has. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he, yet he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. And he will turn away many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And Gabriel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. If you continue on in that narrative, you would read that Zacharias uh, is, the, speech, the, the gift of speech is taken from Zacharias until John is born because of his disbelief. But I want you to notice the different responses from Mary to Zacharias. I want you, verse 18 uh, has some, some very, uh, I believe it's called a cruel irony in it. Listen to this. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? Think about that for a minute, all right? Who's, who's Zechariah talking to? The angel. And then he asks, how will I know this for certain? Now, I, uh, we often like to think that we are better than certain biblical characters in asking for evidences, but I do think it is ironic that he would ask that question even though he's in the Holy of Holies giving the sacrificial offering. He's a, he's a priest and, and he's talking to an angel and he's, he's in fear and he's trembling. And when the angel gives him the message, he says, how will I know this is really going to happen? Now, again, don't elevate yourself above Zacharias, because we have plenty of accounts of people not believing God when a messenger is sent. I think of uh, Moses, especially, talking to the burning bush, and he comes up with excuse after excuse, and, and he finally God is like, you know what, fine, Moses, we're going to have Aaron come and speak for you, because you Moses came up with so many excuses and wanted to know for certain that God would be with him. But then we go to Mary. And she doesn't ask, how will I know this for certain? She asks, what method will be used? How is this going to come about? What process is going to happen so this can happen? How can this be? I am a virgin. And the angel gives her the answers. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And this is one of the first glimpses we get into something called the hypostatic union. Does anyone know what that is? Anyone in here? Hypostatic union? Anyone know what that means? It's essential to your Christian faith, so I sure hope you know what it means. It means that Jesus was totally God and totally man. Not 
Not 99 and 1, not 70, 30, not 60, 40. 100% God and 100% man. And why is that so important? Why is it so essential that Mary is a virgin? Why is it so essential that the conception happens through the Holy Spirit and the power of the shadow of the Most High? Why is the virgin birth so important to the Christian faith? Jesus Christ, God's Son, had to be free from sinful nature, passed all to other human beings because of Adam. Remember, if we, if, we, if we read Genesis 3 and we also read Romans 5, we understand that our sin nature in, in, in our humanity is passed on from Adam. And, and many theologians would argue that it is, that is basically what, uh, when, when it's saying Adam and, and, and communicating that, and there's other places in Scripture, that the, the sin nature, as it were, is passed on from earthly father to his children. This, that's where the sin nature is passed on from and all the wives said amen, right? So why is it so essential? He had to be free from a sinful nature. He's not free from a human nature. He is free from a sinful one. We'll get to that in a minute. Because Jesus was born of a woman, he was a human being, and as the son of God, Jesus was born without any trace of human sin. Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. The infinite, unlimited God took on the limitations of humanity so he could live and die for the salvation of all who believe in him. This sin nature was not passed on to Jesus. Yes, he had a human nature, and, and often we, in our, in our human, skewed, sinful brains, we cannot untie what it means to be human from what it means to be sinful, can we? we can't ima- you cannot imagine a world where that's like. We have trouble imagining what paradise must have been like with Adam and Eve in the garden before sin, when they were naked and unashamed. We have no comprehension of what that is like because we are so tied in our sinful natures in our understanding of humanity. That's also why we can't truly understand what eternity is going to be like as restored human beings, as, as redeemed human beings without sin. We can't understand it. We can't wrap our minds around what that will be like. But we have an example and his name is Jesus Christ. We have a glimpse of what it might be like. Gabriel tells her the process of what's happening, and then gives, even gives her evidence even though she doesn't ask for it. Look there, he says, Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. He gives her, he gives her the tangible evidence saying, hey, you know your relative Elizabeth? She is going to have a baby, even in her old age. And then the angel references, I hope, you, I hope you catch this, the angel references a quote from Genesis chapter 18, talking about the first biblical woman we have evidence of, of being barren with Sarai and Abram. Going all the way back to the first account of where God intervened to bring about a son. Now, he did not do it in the same way as he's going to do it now. The promised son, then Isaac, would have a sinful nature as we can read about in our Old Testament, but not our Savior because he was born and conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And not that we should elevate Mary to a, to a certain status, but her response here is quite remarkable. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Yes, she has the evidence from history, from Elizabeth and, and from Sarai and Abram. Yes, she has evidence that it's going to happen because the angel is standing before her. But she gives no excuse and uses, the, she, she's just amazing. Behold, the bond, I'm the bond slave of the Lord. I want to bring glory to the Lord. Whatever the Lord would have for me, that's what I will do. May it be done to me according to your word. May it happen exactly how it's going to happen. Not, not what I have planned. Not a mix of God's plan and my plan. Totally God's plan. And Mary says, let it happen to me as you have spoken. I also would like to note that Mary is probably not above the age of 14 in this story. It's during the betrothal period, which for women usually happened between the ages of 12 and 14. And yet... Her faith is so great. She's so steeped in the word of God. She, she's so committed to the glory of God that she's able to say, whatever you have planned for me, that's what's going to happen. Let's turn now and see uh, the earthly father's reaction. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Um, there's, you're going to see some genealogies. Uh, in Matthew leading up to the birth of Christ. And um, we're going to focus on the, uh, what's really the conception announcement of Jesus to Joseph, to the earthly father, to the one Mary is betrothed to. Matthew 1 and starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And, the whole, and, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Just a few things I want to point out about um, some, some cultural things that are happening. Um, uh, it says, when his, when, uh, about the birth of Christ, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, most likely what had happened is from uh, a very young age, probably when they were toddlers, they had been promised to one another for marriage by their parents. They, they weren't engaged. They were, they were promised to one another. And then when they came of age, uh, usually in, in their early teen years, men were usually around 15, 16, uh, there would be a betrothal period that would last a year, roughly a year. And uh, during this time, they are in some ways legally married, but uh, they're not acting on the fact that they 
are married. That Joseph is still working and probably getting a home ready. They're not living together. They are not intimate with one another. But for legal purposes, in many ways, they are married. They are joined together. Um, And I don't know, we don't have an account of Mary telling Joseph of how the pregnancy came about or or how the angel visited her. I, I would assume that that would be pretty important news that you would share with someone you were engaged to. Um, but we don't know that for certain. He sees that Mary is, he knows that Mary's pregnant, probably seeing a, maybe a baby bump or, or maybe she told him and, and he didn't believe her. I, I don't know. Um, Joseph being her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planning to send her away secretly. Now that doesn't sound like a very righteous or graceful or merciful thing to do, but let me Uh, I'll list for you Joseph's options of what he could have uh, done. He could have uh, taken her to the synagogue and had her stoned for having uh, a child out of wedlock, for sinning against him and and against God as as, uh, a pregnant mother would have done in those days if they were not obviously conceived by the Holy Spirit. That was kind of option one. He could have had her stoned. Uh, He could have uh, had a public divorce with a trial and, and suing and basically ruined Mary's family, or he could have a small divorce ceremony where he basically writes Mary a note of divorce, gives it to her in front of two witnesses, and she gets sent away. So Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away. I think that's a great indication of Joseph's great love for his wife, her future wife. Joseph is a righteous man, an indicator of perhaps why God chose him to be the earthly father. But we also have a note again from Isaiah 7, 14. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Before they came together, before they were intimate with one another, she became pregnant. Verses 20 through 23 are chalked full of Uh, some great things that we pick up on about who this child will be. It says, When when Joseph had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they called his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew gives us some clues as to the identity of the mother and, and, and what's about to happen. Again, before they came together, implying that she is a virgin. Joseph, and then the angel introduces himself and says, Joseph, son of David. Why is it important that he's a son of David? Because of who his son, his earthly son, will be. And then the name, and why the name. The angel doesn't say this to Mary. The angel tells Mary to name him Jesus, but the angel tells Joseph, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins giving Joseph a clue that the anointed one, the Messiah, is in fact coming. And he's coming soon. 
by naming the child. Usually that would happen on the eighth day when they would take the boy to be circumcised. And by naming the child in the temple, uh, according to custom, Joseph was accepting legal responsibility for him. Joseph was accepting legal paternity for Jesus, as we see later on in um, the gospel accounts of them taking Jesus to the temple. And then again, talking about uh, the virgin birth. The virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. What a great name. God with us. Now, God had been with his people before through different avenues, obviously with Adam and Eve in the garden, and then we have accounts of, of Noah walking with God. We have the account of uh, God dwelling in the temple or in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, or, or appearing as a pillar of fire and a, and a pillar of cloud. There's many instances where God is with his people in some sort of a physical way. But this time, this time it was going to be very, very different. This time, God was going to take on human flesh in order that he would redeem his people. Being born by the Holy Spirit and by Mary, having that perfect God, man, whatever you want to call it, 100% deity, 100% humanity. God with us, to dwell with us, to tabernacle among us. Pastor Tony did a great job a few weeks ago of uh, discussing that briefly. The, the fact that our God chose to step into time, chose to step into a human body, and not just, uh, just appear briefly as a human, but to be raised as a child, to be born, to live, to grow up, to grow in favor and stature with God and with men, to, to perform uh, miracles, to be baptized, to die and to rise again. God with us. Look at Joseph's response here as well. We look at Mary's response and she see that she is very obedient to what the angel has to say. Let's see what Joseph does. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. There's a couple things here that I want to I highlight because I think Joseph is an underrated character even in the Christmas story, an underrated biblical character. Again, not that we should be elevating these people, but I think we can have a great respect for these people. In the Christmas accounts, Joseph is given three dreams from angels. Three. One is the announcement that Jesus is going to be born. One is to tell him that he needs to go to Egypt and one is going to be to tell him to come back from Egypt. And every time in the biblical narrative, Joseph gets up and takes care of business. Each time. There's no dilly-dally, there's no argument, he doesn't question it. He takes care of business and he takes, through that, he takes care of his family What a great man of integrity. Also, speaking to Joseph's integrity, it's interesting to note here in verse 25 that Luke kind of slips 
this little note in, and it says, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth. He had already taken Mary as his wife. There's no, uh, what, what, what happened there is most likely, what, what scholars believe that happened is that during the betrothal period, there was that year, but Joseph kind of sped up the process so he would always, that he would be with Mary and take care of Mary, so he, he marries her in probably a quiet ceremony. We don't have any evidence that it was a big bash. We don't have any evidence that it was just them and the minister, but he marries Mary, but he keeps her a virgin until she gives birth. For all legal reasons, Joseph and Mary could have been intimate together once married. There's nothing breaking the law against that. But Joseph leaves no doubt as to who the father of this child is. Being born of a virgin to make sure everybody will know that this is a supernatural event that is taking place. And then again, he, he follows the command from the angel and he called his name Jesus. So what are we to do with the Christmas story? What are we to do with the nativity? Often, um, we want to rush to application when we read our Bibles, don't we? We want to know how God is going to change us, how, how we need to change ourselves. How It's kind of a, of a get ready quick. We want, it, we want it quick. We want it now. We want, to, we want to see God's word and we want to apply it for ourselves now. What are we to learn from this narrative? First of all, the, the great sovereignty of God having that redemptive plan and even mentioning the fact that he's had this plan since the time of David, since the time of Jacob, and even going back to Abram and Sarai. His great sovereignty, his great love for us for coming as a man, his great wisdom in knowing that it would be totally God and, and totally man was necessary for us to be saved. His great love for his people that he would send his own son to save them. So what are we to do with these accounts? What are we to do with Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem? And I could, in, in studying, I've been trying to come up with application for almost a week. And the only application I come up with is that we owe God our worship. Our great worship. And I think that's evidenced by the fact of what happens after the birth accounts of Jesus. There's two different parties that come to see Jesus be born. And what do both of them do as soon as they get there? They worship. They bring gifts. The shepherds come and they worship and then they go and proclaim it in the streets that the Savior has been born. The wise men travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles to see the Savior and they worship him. And then we even, a few days later, we get to uh, Simeon and Anna in the temple. And what do they do? They praise God and worship him. Oh, then we can, we can go on a little later as Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples. And once they find out who he is, what do they do? Oh, they bow down and worship. Even Thomas, even, remember Thomas? E even he, after, after the account of the resurrection, he doubts. But then what does he do once he sees Christ? He bows down and worships. Because Thomas, the disciples, they know that this is God in human form who has come to redeem his people. So I, I ask you this 
Christmas Day and Christmas Eve as we've already done a little bit this morning, not just through music, not just through reading in the word, but in your homes this Christmas season, I would ask you to take some time to worship your king. Take some time to read the Christmas story with your family. Take some time to sing some great Christmas carols that are so packed with theology. Take some time to pray with your family or for your family. And take some time just to spend worshiping the one who has saved you from your sins. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this great biblical account and in your word. Thank you for Mary and for Joseph and, and how you, through your grace and love, used them as willing servants, how you sent your son and you, you overshadowed Mary and through the Holy Spirit, we have our redeemer. We have the one who would save us. We have the God man who would sit on the throne of his father David and and reign over the house of Jacob forever. Thank you for um, your Holy Spirit and and the life that it brings and and seeing how the the commands of scripture are, are so evident and they can be new every day and we can enjoy reading your word together. I pray this Christmas, I pray today while we're together here and at our homes that we would take just a few moments and show our gratitude through worship, that we would maybe even get on our knees and and pray and thank you for what you've done and spend some time singing some Christmas carols or reading the biblical account of your birth, knowing you more. Thank you for the greatest revelation you have ever given us of who you are through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would have a good holiday season together. I pray that during our family gatherings, our conversation be uplifting and encouraging and that we would always remember your perfect plan as odd as it might seem to us that you would need to come as a baby. But thank you for your wisdom that you knew that you had to do it in order to save your people, God. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.